Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours, and we are creeping up on episode 500. What better way to spend it with the incredible Michael Unbroken? I traded Michael's, just in case you're wondering where Michael Diamond is. I went from Diamond to the rough, Unbroken Michael. <laughs> Welcome to Office Hours, my dear friend. Yeah, man. Amazing to be here. We're going to miss uh, the Diamond himself, but you know, it's the, the Dave and Mike show today, brother. It's good enough for me if it's good enough for you. And we are starting off like bang, gangbusters. And uh, I hope I'm utilizing that word in the correct manner. I'm a huge wordsmith. I love, I have ancient dictionaries. I believe words carry energy and power and frequency. And we have our very first ever social linguist here, a professor at the University of Nevada, Reno, and author of her new book, Like Literally Dude. Uh, and arguing for the good in bad English. And uh, welcome to Office Hours, Valerie. Thank, thank you for gifting us with your presence. Absolutely. Well, if he's the diamond, I'll be the emerald. Let's We'll try for that. <laughs> there we go. We're already starting on a good note. Now, I'm going to start a little bit differently um, because I want to start with the power of words because I'm sure uh, as a social linguist, uh, you deal with the power energy of words beyond the varying meanings of them and the intention uh, that is carried behind them. How do you reconcile the energy of a word, intention and meaning uh, as a social linguist? Because words mean so many different things as we found out early on when I was young with Michael Jackson, he took bad meaning good or good meaning bad and it confused the crap out of me when I was young. But you figured it out now, right? Finally. I'm 55. I finally got it. <laughs> well, you know, I study a lot of different aspects of language, not just words, but also sort of the sound you make, the way you put together words. So how do you create new words? And also how they fit into sentences. So we call it syntax and linguistics. And language is powerful on so many different levels. And people only generally get a view into one level. And that's the level of the words that we say in everyday interactions. There is so much going on in language underneath that surface, you know, just to decide what type of sound you're going to make. So if I say, do you want to do something? And a friend doesn't hear me, they can say, what? And that sort of signals that we're friends and that I know you, but maybe it's my spouse and he pissed me off. So I'm like, what? <laughs> so there's, that's the same word, but there's so much more meaning. And if my boss asked me, I might be thinking, what? But what I probably say is what? So just that one word said three different ways with very subtle changes in the T sound means a lot of different thing socially. And that's really the meaning I'm interested in and the power of language that I'm interested in as a sociolinguist. What kind of thing? So one of the things I think about in you saying that is just playing through my head so many times, or it's like the, the usage, the linguist that I try to be, even though I'm always learning, um, I've had to learn how to call my language, right? Being very obtuse at times. And so I'm trying to figure out like, as you are studying language and looking at it, why is the tonality so incredibly important? And what is the thing that people are missing when they're having conversations with each other? I think the thing that we're missing sometimes, especially when we talk to people that maybe are different a little bit than us in age and gender and ethnicity or whatever it is, 
is the compassion to understand that language is about communication and connection. And that is fundamentally the heart of why we talk to one another. Informational exchange is actually a very small part of what we do in our day. And you know this every time you say, hello, how are you doing to someone? Do you really care how they're doing? No, it's a social nicety because it's saying, I care about you that you exist. I don't actually give a crap if you're sick or not, but I do care that you exist, right? It's having that little just interaction. And sometimes when people say things in different ways, or as you said, you know, you call your speech, you change it to fit a setting because other people may not understand the same meaning that you're intending. Um, And I think what we're missing is, especially in these times, a little compassion for the fact that people come to language from an intensely personal perspective because they're encoding their own experience with the language that we're all given as a gift. But it's also a collective entity. A community, a community decides what language means. One person saying a weird word doesn't make it a new word. Thousands of people adopting that word, that's what makes it a new word. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes we have this mismatch between having a personal experience with language and having a collective experience with language. And I think that's where we get it wrong. And you've been able to weave together history, psychology, science, uh, humor, uh, all into the way that we speak. And what was most interesting to me is the impact that the way we speak is having on the future of language. Uh, How do you suggest that looking historically, psychologically, scientifically, and with humor, uh, the way that we speak today Uh, How is it impacting the future and fashion of language uh, that we see? Absolutely. Well, I'm glad you got the humor because that's such an important part of language. You know, we should have fun with it. We shouldn't be so serious about it. But in terms of your question about how we know what future language will be like based on the past is we are very different in terms of the technology we have and maybe the beliefs that we hold, but we're not different in terms of the human necessities that we have in our lives, the human connections that we tend to make between, for example, parents and children, that has been eternal. We've always had those feelings. So language also is done with the same brains and the same mouths that we had for a thousand years. We haven't changed cognitively or physiologically. So all those forces that started in our heads and all those forces that come through our mouths are the same, whether it was a thousand years ago in Beowulf's time or today. So we can predict what language might move toward in the future by looking at how it's moved in the past. And um, one of those things is, for example, in English, a lot less morphosyntactic complexity, which is a big word, but that means we've leveled out a lot of the endings and inflections that we used to have in our language. And when we start arguing over things like, is it him and me going to the park or he and I, that's a weird argument to have in a language that has lost every marker of case pretty much over the centuries. So that's probably going to level out and him and me will be just as fine as he and I in 50 years. And L-Y as an adverbial, bye-bye. No more of that. (laughs) Uh, I, for one, am a proponent of this. Um, Having been slighted from my grammar many times over the years, I was an author. I'm like, let me just speak my language, please. Um, As an expert with the relationship between language and society, What is the thing that people are most missing that when they explore, like literally, dude, they will discover? 
Well, first of all, I'm here for you, Michael, as a proponent of your grammar. <laughs> uh, I think, you know, one thing that's really missing is this the view of a linguist. We have learned to, to think about English from a very prescriptivist English class grammar standpoint, and we've been indoctrinated into that since we've been babies. I mean, our parents told us those types of things. Then we get it every year from kindergarten on up. But we never learn language like a linguist, which is understanding the structure and the underlying forces and how when those meet social needs, they do something beautiful, creative and innovative. But if we look at history and we look at science and we look at cognitive and physiological efficiency, the way language should go is often very different than the way language, the way we think language should go. And that's the missing puzzle piece that I hope to provide in my book. And one of the things that did not exist in the past that will have a significant impact on language is artificial intelligence. I'm already utilizing ChatGPT to help some of the leaders within my organization change uh, their own participation in a perception uh, where they may be more on the critical analysis side, pragmatic side, and their emails or their communications are not soft. And I said, just put it into chat GPT and say, how would a kindergarten teacher say this? Or, mm. you know, what's the nicest way that I can say this? And I'm blown away because I studied like things like the Bhagavad Gita and the Course of Miracles. And I'll say, take this lesson today from the Course of Miracles and, you know, tell me how a football coach would, would teach this. And the language changes immediately. How does artificial intelligence, uh, do you think artificial intelligence is going to impact the future of linguistics. Wow, that's a big question for a short time. I think there are a number of different ways. <laughs> that's my specialty. That's why you, make this, you make this segment super short. I'm like, well, tell me about your whole life. You got 30 seconds. Go oh, perfect. Ahead. I love it. I love a challenge. You know, I think it's really been a, a great thing for many linguists because professorships are not very easy to get. But uh, with chat GPT and artificial intelligence and computational linguistics, we've opened up a lot of doors for linguists with jobs. So on that front, it's been very good. Everything you say to a computer, every time you talk to Alexa or um, you know Google Assistant, you're actually doing something with the technology that linguists help provide because they hire a lot of linguists to help with the natural language processing and programming and also just natural language data and uh, training data. In terms of how that's going to alter our relationship with language and language going forward, uh, it's a written thing. I mean, chat GPT is a little different than oral language because it's not speaking to you, but it is echoing us. For when now, we though. put it for in now, there for right? now, I mean, yeah. it would depend on how far you believe it will go in its own learning. And we don't quite understand. It's sort of that black box. We put stuff in there. We don't know exactly what's going to come out, which has, I think, surprised a lot of people in good and bad ways. I think we have to look at it as a tool. It's with us. We have to learn to live with it, whether you love it or hate it. I think it can be very useful. Uh, my students, I'm sure, will think it's very useful. Uh, and I think that I can embrace it as part of the way I teach and make it helpful rather than hurtful. In terms of how it will shape the language we speak, like television or radio or any of those things, generally it reflects what we already have as an undercurrent rather than creates it. And I don't think, at least for the foreseeable future, that's going to be any different. I, I will give some professors some advice that I've learned about ChatGPT, for example, is if you have a question whether or not it was created by the student or by AI, all you got to do is put the actual product into it, what's the percentage of chance that this was created by you? And it will tell you 99.9% this was done by ChatGPT. So teachers have it a lot easier as well just to check out uh, 
different plagiarisms that can occur. Uh, so it's a servant, not a master, if I hear you correctly. I will test that out. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, the I'll tell you this. If they had chat GPT when I was in school, I would have a 100% plagiarism rate. I guarantee that. Um, <laughs> one of the things I'm, I'm curious about here, Valerie, you know, I, I think that the, the words that we use matter so much, not only in our day-to-day -day life, our relationships, our communities, our friends with ourselves, but also in leadership. When, when you think about the power of words, when you think about linguistics from this aspect of people like us who are standing on these stages talking about the thing we're passionate about, how important is it to develop a strong voice of leadership? I think it's very important, but I think one thing we forget in roles of leadership is how that voice has been historically um, formed. So the voices that we tend to aspire to in leadership tend to be that of those who have historically held the positions of leadership. So people mm -hmm. with different voices often don't have those same voices. And one perfect example is voice pitch. We really tend to prefer leaders with low voice pitches. There is a huge amount of data to support that. Not because there's anything better with low pitches, but because High pitches have not traditionally been in those areas. So I think we should be careful when we talk about voices of leadership to be inclusive in the voices that we're talking about. But if you can be embracing and inclusive in your language, if you can be a strong proponent of making sure that everybody has their voice heard, I think that's the best type of leadership that you can offer. But certainly there are very strong opinions we have about who makes a good leader and who doesn't. And it's very strongly tied to language. I have no idea what you're talking about. Um. <laughs> I know. I, you see, you were made for leadership, I think, with that voice. <laughs> and I'm the size of Napoleon, so there must be something in that. Perfect. I got everything going for me as a leader. <laughs> Except for I'm kind, so I have to go on more the biblical sense of a leader, not a constructionist sense as well. Um, just to finish up, you also co-authored a book, Social Phonetics, and I was just curious, uh, in that type of, uh, of content, what, what is the takeaway for that book for those people that are interested in seeing and learning about social phonetics? Oh, well, that one is definitely different than my Like Literally Dude book in terms of what it covers <laughs> and who, who would want to read it. <laughs> uh, that, you know, the example I gave with the what and the different sound at the end, sociophonetics is all about how the little differences in the way we make our sounds carry very impactful social meaning. And it explores using instrumental measurements and computational methods, how we move language along in ways that people don't realize in very tiny, tiny incremental acoustic steps so that meaning is made by changes in sound without people realizing it's happening. And that's really what that book's about. It's funny because I just studied this morning, the sound om and how relative to home and all these other things, mm. uh, that sound uh, is so meaningful to so many people and how to utilize that uh, to be persuasive or to resonate or have a frequency of your own uh, that can resonate with people as well. Valerie, just so interesting. Uh, everyone, like literally dude, has to go out and uh, get this book, learn how to speak and connect and collaborate and coordinate in a world that's becoming more and more separate. Our language is more and more important. And it takes people like Valerie Friedland to help us understand and utilize it in that way. Thank you for joining us. Come back. We got a lot more to talk about. Notice I said we got a lot more to talk about, so I know that's fine with you as well. So thank you for being so patient and forgiving of our language. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. I was happy thank to you. be your emerald today. You are. <laughs> you. I don't know. You might be the double diamond. So welcome. Thank you. <laughs>
Awesome. What a great guest. Uh, Mike, by the way, I got to just give you some kudos before we bring Derek on. Um, I love, you know, as you became a new host on the show, and I know I put you in the right spot with the other Michael, but, you know, boy, talk about owning it. You know, I always love to see the first time someone's on and they're going to get in a feel compared to uh, the quality of questions and the energy. You're just bringing it uh, A plus, my brother. You have uh, advanced far beyond most uh, in this hosting realm. So just a pleasure and an honor to have you here. You're kicking ass and I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, thanks brother. I, I learned from the best man watching you watching the other Mike, you know, being studious of the game. Uh, I, I appreciate that. That means a lot to me. Well, good. Well, keep on coming back. I need you. Uh, but Derek needs us as well. Derek Flames Reich is here. CEO, founder of Ness and ESS and that's Nesswell.com. And uh, he, Derek, you got a big launch coming up, uh, and I think you have a wait list that's live right now uh, for the launch of the Ness card uh, and uh, understanding how we are impacting and changing the world of wellness. Welcome to Office Hours. Thanks for having me. Been loving the the love fest all around. Yeah, we got a great place here, and you're yeah. fitting right in. And you really, you know, I, I work on in my own business incentivizing people correctly because engagement is so important to productivity accessibility and gratitude and no better place uh, than to create the productivity accessibility and gratitude especially in a workplace uh, or in our personal lives is to keep people healthy um, but a lot of people have tried incentives uh, to get people to be healthy or to at least pay attention and give intention to their health what makes uh, the nest card different and why is there such a long wait list for it for healthcare incentives. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of things have been tried. I think more people care about health and wellness than, than ever before. Um, it's definitely, you know, we, our research shows that more and more people value health and wellness over travel in terms of their lifestyle identity now, probably in part accelerated by COVID, but something I've been working on my entire career so far um, to help make more and more of a priority. But how do you stick with it is a great question. And in particular, the question that uh, prompted the business uh, that's become the Nest Card is uh, also why is it so darn expensive for most people to afford to be healthy? And so the idea with Nest is actually like a pretty simple one. The, the vision for the business is pretty ambitious, but the idea is pretty simple. Today, most people who have premium credit cards use them basically like spend money and earn points that they can use towards travel. Uh, why not reward people for spending on their health and wellness, taking a health and wellness activity uh, and reward that ultimately with more health and wellness. And so that simple sort of idea is what uh, sparked uh, this journey that we started a year and a half or so ago in building a consumer credit card from scratch. Uh, we just, as you mentioned, did a public beta launch of our first card uh, that's live now and uh, hopefully many more cards in the future to come. Derek, I, I think that's an incredible initiative, man. Um, many people who are watching Office Hours right now are, are entrepreneurs, leaders, business executives, business owners, and I will speak for myself, but I'm sure many people agree, health is everything in business, and if you don't put your health first, you are certainly in trouble. When we live in a society that is arguably the most unhealthy it has ever been in the history of the world due to convenience, due to lack of movement and our need to actually force ourselves into the discomfort of growth, how do you combat that? Yeah. With I mean, I think, I mean, I couldn't agree more, obviously. I think essentially like everything's out to get our health. 
Uh, and, uh, and, and I do think at the same time, again, I do think people really mean well, right? I think people really understand how important it is to be healthy better than ever before. To me, it's about how do you align the incentives? And so our kind of unique approach is to basically go to your wallet and say, Hey, every time you spend at a healthy merchant, we define health very broadly. That can be the kind of obvious stuff like eating well and working out. But in our case, it's also salons and spas, it's mental health and therapy, it's groceries and pharmacies. Um, really kind of, you know, the very broad definition of like what health and wellness really is. Uh, and what we do is we just reward you more for that. And so it ends up becoming the sort of, you know, every time you do it, you get more points at five X points instead of two X points. And it's just like a little extra oomph to, to get you to make the right decision. And then with those points you earn again, you can use them towards more health and wellness. Um, and so I think for me, the business really started basically with the idea of how could you align incentives long-term in the this very broken healthcare space. Um, most people have health insurance for a very short period of time. So health insurance companies have no incentive to invest in your long-term health and reimburse you for your gym membership and eating well. So what if your credit card could do that? Because people tend to stay with credit cards for a very, very much longer period of time. So that's kind of the, the crazy idea. And all of this really came from my own personal struggles with health and wellness. I know too well. Uh, I continue to struggle with health and wellness today. I'm better than I ever was. But, uh, you know, I grew up the biggest kid in the class, strong in my weight. And that was, you know, the reason I started my first company uh, in Greatest um, and uh, why I started this company, Ness, is to help make it easier and more accessible and more affordable for everyone everywhere to get to get healthy. And, you know, I live by the term or quote, you know, that if you're healthy, you get as many wishes as you want every day. And if you're unhealthy, you only have one wish. I also prescribe to a philosophy right. of zero to one is so much harder than one to a hundred, but also the simple things to do are unfortunately simple not to do. And that's why people uh, look for instant results from good behavior. Um, and what I find most compelling about the Nest card is if you look at the credit card, if we made the initial decision, like we do a lot of us at the beginning of the year, I'm going to work out. I'm going to join the gym. Imagine when we joined the gym, if there was a reminder every single day yeah. to go to the gym. Or throughout the day, right? In the form right. of, you know, it's, some kind of reward. Um, it's, yeah. It's, it's outstanding. Just the reminder, the recollection and the remembrance of the prioritization of the non-negotiable of health. Because I think credit cards are used more than ever than any other currency worldwide. And that, you know, not only when we're using it as a reminder, hey, you know, I'm pulling this out and now I'm looking at my groceries going, how healthy, you know, are these groceries? And maybe we, you know, yeah. pull the lucky charms off of the conveyor belt <laughs> or whatever it may be. But I, yeah. I think there's a lot of inherent value beyond the simplistic value of an incentive program to save money for your health care or for healthy things. Uh, I think the most powerful thing is that if people want to be healthy and they make the decision to get the Nest card, you're buying into the ultimate accountability program uh, and yeah. you get rewards I love on top that. of it. And yeah, I, it's like, a, it's a lifestyle, right? We think, um, and many people live that lifestyle, but most of the people who live that lifestyle want to live more and are human and mess up and, you know, try to get back on the bandwagon the next day. 
Yeah, I think I'm a big believer in um, this Stanford uh, professor, BJ Fogg, has a behavioral change model where essentially the way to get people from like wanting to do something to actually doing it, there's only really two methods. One is to make it easier and one is to increase their motivation. And so, you know, everything we've been trying to do at NAS is how do we make it easier? And, and, and often that can be like, you know, more affordable, right? Uh, or more curated because you know what thing to do versus like the big wide world of what could be done. Uh, and then we, you know, motivate you more. We make the experience beautiful and wonderful. We give you those points. We, you know, like, um, you know, have an elevated experience of the card itself. So when you pull that thing out, it's not just saying, hey, like I, I have a fancy card because I like to travel. Everyone likes to travel. It's like, hey, I've committed to health and wellness and this card symbolizes that commitment. Uh, and, uh, and if that helps drive a couple more decisions every single day, a couple more decisions every single week can make a very big impact long-term. Yeah. I love what you just said. You know, it made me think about why I wear the shoes that I wear, right? We, as communal species, we like to galvanize around certain ideas. And I think if we can galvanize around health, that will be an incredible move forward into the future. Mm. Um, one of the things I, I think about a lot is, so my, my background, I worked for a Fortune 10 insurance company when I was in my early 20s, and I found the inner workings of it to be despicable at best, so I won't say what company that was, but there is no incentivization for people to live in health. And so when you look at this, how do you how do you start to approach having that conversation as someone who is providing a different alternative when you have these health insurance companies who are like, we could care less about you being healthy because we're actually sick insurance companies and you bring this to the table as an alternative. How do you start to change the narrative in people's minds? Yeah, what I, again, I, you know, I think most of the people I meet who work at healthcare companies and health insurance companies, they are well-intended and uh, they ultimately like would love to value your health and invest in people's health, health long-term. The problem is just that like the financial incentives aren't there. You know, it just is, it's just true that the vast majority in this country, people get health insurance from their employer. People stay with employers for a very short period of time. And so like, what's the incentive to care about your long-term health and, and reimburse you for a gym membership if by the time any of it makes a difference, not only are you no longer on my health plan, but you're on a competitor plan. And so for me, it's all about how you like align those incentives. There's really nobody in the healthcare space that has a deep and long-term health-first relationship with consumers because, you know, like we mostly get it from our employers. We just go to the hospital that's nearest us or that's recommended. We just don't have these set of long-term relationships and we've never had less long-term relationships with like a primary care physician, right? As we move around more and that's become less and less popular. And so we're left with like, how can we actually have someone who cares about our long-term like health? And so the idea here, again, pretty like, um, unique wedge of sort of this credit card is well, we can stick with you for 20 to 30 years. And if we know that you'll be with us for 20 to 30 years, one day we might be the ones offering the health insurance that actually like pays for your, you know, therapist mm -hmm. and um, reimburses you for, you know, your vitamin D. Yeah. And as we found out from multiple credit card companies, owning the customer uh, is extremely valuable when it comes to this business model and no better way to own the customer than healthcare itself. Uh, Derek, where can people sign up for the card? Where's the best place they can go? And you and you are signing up people now. Yeah, we're signing up people now. Um, we're in public beta. Uh, so, you know, you'll be some of our earliest members. Um, we just announced our big partnership with Sweet Green, every fifth salad free, essentially, with for members. Uh, big healthy spend credit. 
Uh, it's a premium card, uh, so it's not for everyone, uh, but there'll be other cards in the future at more accessible price points. Um, we're already working on our next one, which should be $99, and you know, eventually we'll have free cards too. Uh, Nestwell.com is the best place to check it out. Uh, it's like wellness, but flipped. <laughs> there you go. Nestwell, get the Nest card and be part of a wellness movement to make as many wishes as you want every single day when you're healthy. Make it your non-negotiable get a reminder and incentivize your life by getting a Nest card. Thank you, Derek. We'll have you back as you are launching more Thank and you. more cards and providing more and more people with this great gift. Derek Flain Reich, thank you so much. CEO of Nest. Thanks for having me. Awesome. All right. And in our cleanup spot, Michael Unbroken, Scott Whiteford is here, Director of Leadership and Analytics at Talent Plus. That's what I call Michael Unbroken Talent Plus. Welcome, Art. Uh, oh, sorry, Art's here. Sorry, I'm, I'm maybe I'll get this right. I didn't Mike, know if someone else was joining us. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Mike, do you have? Uh, yeah, Art, Art is the Chief Executive Officer at Delinea. Is that correct? And you guys uh, work with AI programs to help companies not be vulnerable to cyber attacks. We definitely, uh, we are focused on uh, identity in particular, but yes, obviously there's lots of AI and, and machine learning stuff that's in the products for sure. Awesome. Mike, why don't you lead off for me? Because Yeah, uh, absolutely. So why don't here, we dive into that a little bit more? Art, because, just, I don't have my notes. I don't know what Yeah, no, no worries. <laughs> um, <laughs> Art, what, what I'm curious about is when we are moving in towards this world that is so in, embedded with AI and it's just starting, as you know. Yeah. Uh, you see audio being sampled and video being sampled, graphics being created. I even had ChatGPT say, who is Michael and Broken last week? And it did a better job explaining who I am than I can. And so when you think about this and you, you have all this worry about theft and identity, where do you begin? Like, what is it that you guys bring to the table to protect people like me, like David, like yourself in this new digital era? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, the things that uh, a lot of the cybersecurity industry is worried about right now is like, how, how are people going to use AI to create new attacks, create new ways of going after and social engineering people? Uh, and so in our, our case in particular, it's that social engineering, that focus on the individual users, uh, and in particular, the super users, the people that have the keys to the kingdom uh, within an organization. And so... Uh, we build technologies essentially that help protect those people's passwords. Um, and so essentially separating the person from the credentials or the passwords uh, and making sure those things are rotated a lot. And so the person actually really never knows them. And so if they get compromised, if they get attacked, um, we keep the rest of the environment safe, essentially. Uh, and so that's essentially what we're doing. Um, but that focus on sort of the like what you said, it can it can write a paper about you better than uh, you can write yourself. People are the bad guys are going to use that tool to really target you. It'll scan all your social media, scan everything about you, and be able to focus an attack that you'll believe is true from a friend that you trust, and you'll click on stuff, and it's going to put companies at risk. And so, tools like ours help to avoid that. And you know, I've dealt with a lot of the cybersecurity people over the years since Web One and. 1992 yep. when people were just afraid to use the internet and then moving to afraid to put a credit card on the internet. Yep. Um, and, you know, through all technologies in history, uh, it is a process of radical humility that no matter 
how much of an expert you are. And we see this today in our government in the security of our information with, Absolutely. you know, young people being able to access information that should never be able to be accessed or utilized and for fun just to be, you know, posted on a discord or wherever it's being posted, yeah, uh, which has significant dangers and impacts in it. Um, I always wanted to get into the mindset uh, of people like you are or Rick Jordan sure. of, you know, it must be so radically humbling to know what you don't know, uh, where there is a little bit of uh, an ignorance is bliss, uh, even though there is a fear factor that people have of AI. When you're deep into it and you know what you do know, but you also know what you don't know, um, yeah. how do you prepare for that uh, or regulate for it or help to inform people of it? Yeah, I mean, so I've been in the security space for 23 years or so. Uh, so when I started, as you said, it was, it was pretty That's why you don't have any hair left. I get it. No, that's exactly <laughs> you answer right. The, you answer it, the it, question. I get that it is, now. That in 17-year-old twin. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, so I, uh, there you go. You still got some. Yeah, um, it's fake. It's a yeah, like 23 years ago, like you're selling to the, the person in the basement. Uh, now you've got movies about it. It's like everywhere. And so I think what obviously over that much time, you just you one, you're super paranoid. And so like I don't click on anything. I you, you just sort of build in this healthy paranoia. Um, but I think what what you hit on there, too, about the humbling part of it. Um, there's just a real structural imbalance in the economies of cyber attack. Like for most companies, most organizations, you spend money to protect yourself. And at some point you run out of money. Um, but for the bad guys, uh, any dollar that returns a dollar oh one uh, is worth it to spend that. And so, uh, you know, we're budget constrained, we're regulated, we're, you know, we have sort of limits amount, amount we can do. Uh, we have legacy infrastructure we're dealing with uh, as companies. Um, but then the bad guy is like, I only have, I can try 1 million times. And if I'm right one time, I win. And I have to be right every single time. And so I think what, it, what you start to realize is, look, this is a game of trying to be complicated enough that they go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. um, and so some of the work that we do with companies is, look, we just, you're trying to raise the level to a place where you're just a harder target. And so the bad guys would rather go make easy money. Uh, and there's a ton of easy money out there. Um, right. And so you, I think you, that's, you that's below, how it works. You want to stay below the dollar for a dollar. You want to be at 99, so spend a dollar to get 99 cents. Yeah, I mean, money. even if you're a dollar 25, if everybody else is a dollar 50, they're going to go to the dollar 50. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the that's the sad thing about uh, about where we are. I mean, there's, you, ha you hear all those sort of jokes about, you know, you don't need to be faster than the bear. You just got to be faster than your buddy. Yeah, uh, that, that was my philosophy in Africa. I, I told Warren Moon that. I, I, we were out <laughs> on safari. I'm like, dude, I don't have to be faster than that cheetah. I just got to be faster than you. Exactly. You, you can't run anymore, buddy. I got you. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Art, Art, one thing I'm curious about, you know, we've seen over the course of the last six, 12 months, and, and really since we had internet protections of any capacity, um, people getting hacked, 
passwords getting leaked. Um, yeah. A very large company recently had a huge leak, arguably one of the biggest ever. Like, yeah. what do we do to protect ourselves, right? As business, not only as business owners and entrepreneurs, but as people on the day to day, like our, our cell phones are connected. We have our cold and warm storage for our NFTs and our crypto, yeah. our bank accounts, everything's digital. I mean, you're hard pressed to ever go anywhere without your cell phone. How in the world do we protect ourselves, Art? Yeah, look, I think the, the reality is, is as our lives have become more digital, crime just followed, right? And the, the challenge we have is the economy is good, crime is high. The economy is bad, crime is high. Um, and so the, the, the reality is, is there is just uh, an inherent risk in general in life around that. And cybersecurity is no different. I think it's really about the balance between the benefits and the, the pleasure, I guess, that you get out of the way in which you live and then some of the downside risk. I mean, luckily, there's a lot of protections in the companies these days. And so if you're doing work with a credit card company and your card gets stolen or your bank account gets stolen from some way, there's insurance and there's ways that they protect you on that. And so it sort of alleviates the damage, if you will. And so that's part of just the infrastructure of how we've done it. And so we sell our products to those companies to try to make them more secure to protect the consumers. And that's part of it. The other thing I would say is there is just better hygiene that we can all do, right? And so don't use the same password for everything that you own. Uh, you'd be surprised at how many people, and it's because passwords are really complicated to remember and having 700 of them for all the different places you interact with is impossible to keep track of. Um, and so there's some you know, password vaults that are available to help you do that or uh, for things that are, or categorize them. So what I do is I categorize my passwords. Stuff is not meaningful. I have uh, passwords that I use. I have some that are more for my financial services kinds of things that are more complicated that I, I remember. Those are some things you can do. And then the other thing I would say is, you know, you need to be a little more paranoid and you need to think a little more. Um, there's so much phone scamming now. There's so many links that get sent to you. Um, I just, you just need to be more cautious. And I think as people become more cautious, I think it's way easier for younger folks uh, to get used to it because they grew up digital. Uh, it's way harder to convince my father-in-law and my parents, like you got to stop clicking on that stuff. And when they send you a text, it doesn't mean they know who you are. Um, and so some of that is just, you know, a healthy dose of paranoia, unfortunately, as part of the, as part of what I think we need to do to protect ourselves. Absolutely. And we not only have to protect ourselves from external threats, uh, but as we also have seen, you know, these internal threats, do you yeah. address the internal side of things as well and the practices or best practices that are necessary to protect ourselves internally, whether it be family members or employees? Yeah. yeah so, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about Delinea, if you don't mind. And yes, please. Like, that's what, what that's are, why we have you here, believe it or not. Yeah, fair, fair <laughs> enough. I never talked about the industry because I love it. I've been like, I joined, I kind of tripped over it on accident at a startup and I fell in love with it. So I, I like all aspects of it. Um, but uh, Delinea in particular works with companies. So we don't sell our products to people um, uh, in the, in their sort of consumer sense. We sell to organizations or companies, uh, both large and small. And what we do for those companies is essentially separate the human being from the credentials or the rights that they have within an organization. So I'm a CEO. I get access to a lot of stuff. It's probably a good idea if the company says, I'm going to control all those passwords for you. You're going to log into the system and you're going to prove that you are who you are. And then I'm going to test 
does Art actually, is he allowed to do what he wants to do? And if that's yes, I will make that connection for him. And then I'm going to audit and watch what he does. And if what he's doing is not out of the ordinary, I'm going to stop it. <laughs> and so what we do for companies is for the most special users, those users that have like the privileges that are super high, we help those companies not only separate that person from their rights uh, within the organization, but then we monitor and audit the things that they're doing in real time while they're doing it. And if they're doing something that is not normal or out of the ordinary, we can shut that connection off, if you will. Um, and so a lot of the ways that we work with companies is, uh, and organizations is to allow those connections to happen, make that connectivity easy and feel seamless, but have this sidecar kind of on the side watching what's going on. And I suppose a little big brother-ish, if you will, for those special people to make sure that they're not doing stuff bad. And so you, you, you brought up the, um, the most recent sort of breach and posting on Discord. Being able to watch that person's access, what they're doing, audit it in real time, have a video, literally a video recording, a digital video recording of the, the things that they're doing, it's possible they would have found that person way faster. Now, is there a conversation to be had? And we might be going down a whole rabbit hole, but I can't help but ask this. Sure. Is there a conversation to be had about privacy in the workplace when it comes to these things? Yeah, I mean, look, there. I think there uh, there is uh, a right to privacy in in your personal life. Um, now, I am. Uh, I, I guess maybe I would be more conservative on this side. Is is at the company? It is the company's data. It's the company's systems. It's the organization's rights to be able to watch what happens in their environment. Um, now, that is a very American view. Uh, I think different countries and different uh, places in the world have different perspectives on that. Um, but I, I, I believe a company has a right to monitor and watch what happens within their own environments, on their systems, within their data. Um, and so I think in that case, you give up your personal right to privacy and, and different companies have different policies. Uh, so for our company in particular, we buy all the equipment for our employees. We we tell them in advance that they're going to be monitored and that they're, uh, the data and those systems are ours. Um, and I think that's an important part of it. You have to give transparency to your employees to make sure they know what's going to happen. Um, we're not, I'm not looking for, I mean, the reality is, is no company is looking for, you know, personal life stuff. We don't care actually about that. Um, but I don't want you downloading sensitive documents. I don't want you take, I don't want you to sending my financial statements to your personal email address. Um, there's just no need to do that. We give you all the tools you need to. And I think uh, my own personal belief is you kind of give up some of that privacy uh, when you go to work. Now we could have a beer conversation about whether privacy is even a real thing anymore, given how much stuff people post on the internet uh, these days. Um, but you know, that's a, that's a drink conversation more than a, than a real one. Yeah. I think you should have different rights and permissions. If you sign the front of the check compared to if you're signing the back of the check, uh, and we've I, lost think that's a, right. I think we've lost a little bit of that perspective sometimes when it comes to, uh, why you're here and what you have access to, uh, there's right. a reason I'm paying you. Uh, yeah. but, the art, you know, you're, Business, I'm sure, is booming, but it's going to only exponentially boom. Uh, there's going to be no shortage of need 
uh, in the corporate or personal world. Sadly, uh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's, uh, it, it, it's just amplified, right? It's always been there. It's just amplified now over the last 30 years. Right. Uh, you know, people used to sneak, sneak files out of uh, their offices. Uh, we didn't have any way of catching them because uh, there's no video, no, no systems at all. So right. on the other side, it's just very much an amplified issue that can have a significant impact. And that's why we need people like Art providing the value. Uh, where can people go if they're a company? It's Delinea.com. Is that correct? Yep. Delinea.com. You can learn a lot about uh, how to protect your most sensitive assets. You got to protect your most sensitive assets with my friend Art. Thanks for joining us. Right on. Thank you, guys. Cheers. Thanks for your patience. Great. All right. We are rocking and rolling. Congratulations, Mr. Unbroken. Unbelievable job once again. Now, to finish up, let's see if you can hit it out of the park. Takeaway for the day. Uh, the one that comes to mind is filling safety in my grammar. Thanks to the amazing Valerie Friedland. That was an incredible conversation. And now, you know, as an author, as a speaker, as a podcast host, I'm going to read like literally dude. So I can even have a better understanding of my good in the bad English. I liked your bad English, including when you said, is it the whole whole? I don't know if you caught that one. That was really good as well. And I'm rejoicing in the uniqueness of a Michael Unbroken and the linguistic art of communication that you're able to convey to so many to resonate with them. I'm a frequency linguist, meaning that I uh, try to connect to people and have what I'm saying, the lessons, the light and the love resonate with those uh, 10% automatically adopt or adapt the other 80% and accept and forgive the 10% that hate me no matter what. Even if my English is perfect, it's a matter of frequency. Yes. Uh, and so for me, uh, my, my takeaway from the notes that I have uh, is that uh, progress, not perfection. Uh, with all three of our uh, guests, um, it's inherent in what I look for with the people that work with me, progress, not perfection. And I spent too many years trying to be perfect myself uh, and then projecting that onto other people, the expectation of perfection. And I agree, uh, I rest in God, I say, when I believe in progress and understand progress is uh, absolutely the outcome of behavior and it's synergistic and aligned uh, with our behavior. So good progress comes from good behavior and needless to say where bad progress comes from as well, but there will never be the perfection that I sought uh, in my younger days, my ignorant, arrogant days uh, there. And I hope I am projecting that forgiveness onto others as well for the progress that I see in them. And uh, including you, uh, your progress has been amazing. And it's just such a pleasure to see it in your professional career. But I'm benefiting it, of course, uh, on this show because uh, you're bringing it with the, the full heat uh, as uh, Think Unbroken, my man, uh, you are absolutely empowering others. So thank you, Michael Unbroken, for joining me. Everybody, it's progress, not perfection. My man, Michael Unbroken, uh, thank you again. Everybody, email me, david at dmelzer.com. Don't forget to be happy. I will be doing free Friday training. Uh, that's on there as well. If you want my books, guides, or exercises, those are free. If you haven't signed up for training, we have over 80,000 people registered. 
uh, to come for free Friday training now. It's blowing my mind. If you haven't registered, we're on every platform, david at dmelter.com. When you register, I will sign a book, send it to you, pay for shipping and the book. So don't worry about that as well. But most importantly, be more interested than interesting. Be kind to your future self and do good deeds. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great night. Thank you.